Our gracious God and Father, once again we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We realize that we do not perhaps exercise this privilege and this opportunity often enough. But Lord, we are confident that when we come before thee, you do hear. And you are concerned and interested about our needs and about our lives. Now we pray today for those who stand in special need. We are reminded so often, Father, of the widows, those who are alone, those who have many hours throughout the day and throughout the night, and they are needful of companionship, for someone to care, for someone to minister to their needs. And so we would pray for each one of them today, and we would pray for thy people. As one lady said to us one time, Pastor, there comes a time when the Lord's people need to put feet to their prayers, and how true it is. And so we pray that we might be conscious of the opportunities to serve thee, the opportunities of ministry that we have for your glory and honor and praise. Bless, we pray, those who are sick today, those who are going through a difficult time physically, spiritually, and emotionally. May they find your grace and strength in a special measure in their lives, and we'll be careful to give you the praise for it in our Savior's name. Amen. If you want to take your Bibles and turn with us this morning to the 11th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 11. We're just going to use this more as a starting point in our study and also in our discussion. And I would encourage you, if you have some questions uh, that you would like to have us answer later on this afternoon, or at least find some answers for, I do not claim to have answers to everything. Well, I couldn't, shouldn't say that. I have an answer for everything. Sometimes it's I don't know. But uh, so there are times when I have to search out the Scriptures, just like you do, uh, to find uh, some of the biblical answers. And as I've said to you before, I'm constantly learning. We never cease to learn. Ninety percent, if not more, of everything we know, we are indebted to others for that material. Very little of what we teach is uniquely our own. Once in a while, we're able to come up with a gem uh, that someone else has not uh, shared before, and we're thankful for that. But the majority of what we have learned, uh, we are indebted to others for. Someone has asked me before, uh, not in our group here, but how long does it take to prepare a message? And I said, well, I've been in the ministry 31 years now, and some of my messages it has taken 31 years. Uh, I think what they're asking is, how long does it take when you sit down to put a message together? Well, it's an accumulation of really what you have learned, uh, what you have experienced, uh, what you have seen God do. And so much of what we teach is uh, material that has been accumulated over the years. Uh, some of it is more recent, but all of it we trust is to the honor and the glory of our Lord. In the 11th chapter of the book of Luke, I find a very interesting passage here dealing with the subject of prayer. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. 
And I believe again this morning that perhaps this is still the request that many of us have in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, teach us to pray. As I said yesterday, I believe that most of us feel that our prayer life is oftentimes quite inadequate. When we read about men that have spent hours upon hours on their knees in prayer, and how the floor has been worn from the place where they have knelt to pray to God, uh, oftentimes we feel that our prayers are perhaps very short and very limited. And so we too we may often say inwardly, Lord, uh, teach us to pray. But not as it alone a matter of teaching us to pray, but also what to pray for. And I trust that in our studies, this is one area we're going to be able to help each other in, knowing what to pray for. Yesterday, as we came to the close of the day, uh, we looked into Romans, the 8th chapter, where we read there that we do not know how to pray as we ought. And we suggested to you that it is limited to its context, because God has given us clear instructions in other areas of what we are to be praying for. And I believe if we will heed them, it will enhance our prayer lives and will help us and help others spiritually as well. And so the disciples came to the Lord. They were very sincere, very open to the Lord's direction here. Lord, teach us to pray. And then we note, uh, they, he, they go on to say, as John also taught his disciples. Uh, they wanted a, a good prayer life. They wanted to know how to pray. They wanted to know what to pray for. Now, we're not going to get into what follows. Uh, we have material here to get into it, but I don't believe that we'll have the opportunity this week to get into the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there is much that could and undoubtedly should be said upon it as far as its dispensational implications are concerned. Uh, if you understand what our Lord was teaching them, how to pray and what to pray for, and if you study it in the light in which it was given, you will realize that this prayer is not the pattern for us today. Now, I have read a number of books on prayer, and almost every one of them will take us back to the Lord's Prayer and say, here is the pattern for our prayer lives. Well, it is the pattern that God gave to his disciples. It is the pattern for those of the nation of Israel. It will be indeed the pattern of those who would be going through the tribulation period. But as wonderful of a prayer as, as it is, and we do not take anything away from it at all, it's a beautiful prayer in its context. It's a wonderful prayer. It's true of God's Word. Many passage are, passages are wonderful passages, but in their context, in the light in which they were given, in the purpose in which they were given. Now, people often say, well, if I believe what you do, that Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles, and that in his 13 letters... God reveals his plan and his purpose for the body of Christ, I limit myself in my study and understanding of God's word. That's not true. When you understand that, it opens up the Bible. The Bible becomes a new book. And I've had folk tell me that when they came to know the grace truth, and uh, this is a, a very general term, but when they came to know something about the distinctiveness of Paul's message and Paul's ministry, they said it was like getting saved all over again. It just opened up the Bible in a new way, in a new light, that they had not understood it before. They could no, they no longer had to spiritualize. Now they could accept it as God said, and they could begin to understand what God was declaring unto them. So even though the Lord's Prayer, as is commonly spoken of, 
is certainly wonderful and glorious and will be prayed, I believe, yet in the future, uh, yet it is not God's pattern for us today. Some years ago, while we were in Genoa City, Wisconsin, pastoring, we used to have meetings together on certain uh, special days. One of them was uh, Good Friday. Another one would be perhaps uh, on Memorial Day. And our churches would get together Thanksgiving Day for a meeting. So one day, a young Methodist pastor came over to the house, and we were going to draw up the schedule for the service. And he said, well, the first thing we'll do, we'll all come in together in our robes. And he hadn't been in Genoa City too long. I said, well, if you gentlemen want to wear your robes, that's fine. I said, I don't have a robe, and I don't think I'm going to wear a robe. But that's, that's all right. You go ahead. No, no. He said, we want to be uniform in this. But he said, we'll go down the aisle together, and we'll get down, and then we'll kneel down when we get down there, and we'll go ahead and pray. I said, well, I, I don't care for that formality, but if you gentlemen want to do it, that's fine, you know. It's all right with me. And uh, he began to look at me with some big question marks. He said, you know, he said, I don't have, I have convictions, but I don't have convictions like you do. And I said, listen, I said, you're a Methodist pastor. And I said, you should be a Methodist pastor because you believe the Methodist doctrine is right. Now, that's why you should be a Methodist preacher. Because you believe that the doctrine you are teaching is the right doctrine. Now, if you don't believe that, you shouldn't be a Methodist. You ought to be whatever you think is right then. And uh, he finally said, well, I know there's one thing you will do. He said, when we are all up there together and the meeting is ready, he said, I'd like to have you lead the congregation in the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> I said, I want to tell you something. <laughs> and I talked to him a little bit about rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, I saw him a week or so later. And he said, you know, he said, I've been trying what you told me. And he said, it works. It works. It makes a difference in the study of the Word of God. It works. Absolutely it does. It makes sense. Well, uh, here the disciples were asking then, Lord, teach us to pray. And our Lord gave them a pattern for prayer. And like I said, we won't get into that this morning. But uh, if we have time, perhaps in, maybe you have some questions on this. Maybe some of you are not certain why we do not believe the Lord's Prayer is our pattern for praying. If you have a question on that, why don't you put it down, write it down for us, give it to us. Maybe we can discuss it this afternoon. We'd be more than happy to, to do that in our discussion period. For if you understand what it teaches, if you understand what it is saying, you'll have no difficulty realizing why we would not want to be praying that today. All right? Now, <clears throat> we're going to be looking today into the life and into the ministry of prayer uh, I have some thoughts I want to share with you. Uh, I'll not tell you where I got the material, but I have it written down here. I know where I, I received it. Lest some believe that we have departed from the faith. But uh, his material is good in this area. Other areas I find that he comes short. But it deals with our pattern for prayer. And if you listen carefully to what he has to, to say here, I think you'll get the thought of what is being stated, accepting only the prayers of the Redeemer, that is the prayers of our Lord. In the epistle, or in the epistles, prayers alone are the praises and petitions specifically addressed to the Father. Now it's in the epistles that you will find that prayer is specifically addressed to the Father, but not only addressed to the Father, 
But as he goes on to say, in them alone are they offered in the name of the mediator. Now you realize that even during the earthly ministry of Christ, there was a change in prayer. Our Lord taught his disciples prior to going to the cross that hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. But from now on, whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you. And the Lord's prayer, or the disciples' prayer, was not in the name of the Lord. See, they addressed the Father, but not through the Son. This came prior to the time that Christ was to ascend back into the presence of the Father. They did not have to go to the Father through the Son. He was with them. He was their comforter. He was the one who was alongside of them. He was there to help them, to encourage them, and to comfort them. But after he left, then they were to address the prayer in his name. And so he points out that in the epistles, the, they are offered in the name of the mediator, and in them alone do we find the full breathings of the spirit of adoption. Now I want to say that again. Sometimes a little statement provides a great deal of truth or a great wealth of truth. In them alone do we find the full breathings of the spirit of adoption. Now, I, I just want to share with you a little bit about what that means. I touched upon it briefly yesterday, that those who are not saved are in Satan's kingdom. They are the sons. That's the word adoption. They are heirs to whatever Satan has. Now, in the body of Christ, in the administration of grace, we have received the adoption. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, and I would encourage you to read that portion, the first part of Galatians 4, Paul was showing that while Israel was underneath the law, while the law was there, they were underneath tutors and governors. Though Israel had the inheritance, yet they could never fully enjoy the inheritance. Everything was given out a little at a time. Like we mentioned, this son who may come of age and receives the keys to the car and the bank account, before that time, he has an instructor. He's under tutors and governors. And though he is going to be the heir of everything, yet he has to ask for everything, and it's given to him a little bit at a time. See? Now, when we come to the epistles of Paul and we come to our position in Christ, we already have the full position of sonship. The blessings are already ours in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 15, we have the Seraphonician woman who comes to our Lord and to his disciples, and her daughter is grievously vexed with the demon. She's a Gentile woman. And she comes to the apostles, to the disciples, and to the Lord, and she cries out for help. Said, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter is grievously vexed with a demon. And the disciples turned to the Lord and said to the Lord, Lord, send her away. Now here we have a Gentile woman whose daughter is vexed with a demon, calling out to the Lord for help, and the disciples say, Lord, send her away. Now, I spent a number of weeks studying with the Seventh-day Adventist. And when we talked about that passage, he said the problem was 
the apostles were bigotous. They had to learn that the Gentiles were just as good as they were. But I said, don't you realize in Matthew 10, our Lord instructed his disciples, the apostles, do not go to the Gentiles. Don't enter into the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I said, now that seems to me that's quite clear. If the Lord said to the twelve, don't go to the Gentiles, I don't know how he could have made it any clearer. And so when this Gentile woman came to them, they had nothing for her. They were not sent to her. They had no ministry for her. And so they said, Lord, send her away. She crieth after us. Now those of you who are familiar with the record realize that our Lord said to his disciples, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When Jesus Christ came down to this earth, he came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. That is, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a minister of the circumcision. Christ did not come to evangelize the world. Christ came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Again, brethren, it is clear in scriptures, and as I've said before, I plead with people, I plead with you, in your study of the word of God, at least if you don't agree with what we say, teach the word as it says. If Christ says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, believe it. Don't make it mean something other than what is said. Now the point I wanted to make here, though, is that the Lord did answer this Gentile woman's prayer. And he did heal her daughter. Not until the Lord had said to her before this, though, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and it is not meat, it's not right, to take meat from the children's table and cast it to you Gentile dogs. Now, we talk about rights today. My, wouldn't the uh, civil rights movement have a, a feast day on that? When they go to their lawyers and say, look, we better take this guy to court, you know, he doesn't understand what's going on. But you know what this woman said? She said, truth, Lord, but the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the children's table. Now, my dear friend, in the gospel records, whatever the Gentiles were to receive would be crumbs compared to the feast that we enjoy today as members of the body of Christ. Now, if you can, and this is what I'm saying here. When we talk about the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship, I have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we're going to find when I come to the Lord in prayer and I ask for these things, He's not going to withhold anything from me. He's not going to give me just a little bit at a time, He'll give me as much as I want and as much as I'm able to handle. He'll do that for me. So we have this great privilege of prayer in coming to our Lord as those who are the sons of God. Those who have already been given the blessings spiritually that are ours in Christ. And I would encourage you sometime just to go through the Ephesian letter of Paul and put down the riches that you have in the Lord. It is a sad thing today that many believers are living in spiritual poverty. 
if not most believers. They do not enjoy the blessings that they have in Christ because they're back in the gospel records where the very most they could hope for would be crumbs. Now bear with me. I've said to some of my people, there is a lot of crummy preaching going on today. <laughs> now I didn't say there are a lot of crummy preachers. What I'm saying is that many pastors are not giving their people the meat of the word of God. They can't digest it. And unless they're telling them stories from scripture, and they may good, be good stories, their people do not, uh, cannot contain it. But I trust that you and I go beyond just the basics, beyond the meat of the, the milk of the word, rather, to the meat of the word of God. And I think what we're looking at here is, is some meat. If you can understand this thought of adoption, the position of sonship, what it means to you personally, what it means to you and to me as individuals, my dear friend, you're going to have a great beginning to understanding and enjoying many of the blessings that God has imparted to you already through his beloved son. We talked yesterday of having received at least a foretaste of heaven through the first fruit of the Spirit. Already God has given us a foretaste. Now we need to be enjoying it down here, not the earth. God says set our affection on things above, not on things on this earth. You can spend a whole lifetime building up treasures on this earth. You're going to leave them behind. Someone once said about the millionaire who died, I wonder how much he left behind. Someone responded, all of it. And it's true. Everything is left behind. The only thing that you and I will ever take with us to heaven are our loved ones that we had the privilege of leading to the Lord. I like that, don't you? I thank God when I get to heaven, my family is going to be up there. I say this humbly. I don't say it boastfully. I say it humbly. And it's our constant prayer for you, my dear friend, that you can say the same thing. And if you as a parent are not sure of the salvation of your children, I trust that you make this constantly a ministry of prayer. Now, I just want to say this. As parents, it is important for you to live a life before your children that will glorify the Lord. Just sending your children to Sunday school, just telling your children what they ought to do and not doing it yourself, you're teaching your children that the things of the Lord are not important. It's like the man who came to the preacher and said, I don't understand it. My children just do not seem to enjoy your messages. And uh, the pastor just was, you know, dumbfounded by this. Well, someone observed one day, and as soon as the preacher got ready to preach, the man hauled out the Sunday school paper. And he began to read the Sunday school paper. What was he teaching? He was teaching his kids. Listen, he doesn't have anything you want to hear. If you want to go ahead and draw, whatever, go ahead and do it. Instead of like was said this morning, taking your Bible and giving your children that illustration of, look, the Word of God is important. We want to hear what He has to say. We want to hear what God has to say to us. Now you listen, you pay attention to what God has to say. You see, my dear friend, we teach far more by what we do than ever we will by what we say. I've said this. When, we, when our children were growing up in our home, our children were not concerned so much of what their dad said from the pulpit as they were of what their dad was in the home. 
Because if I did not live a life consistent to what I was preaching, my children would have just turned right away from the Lord and would have turned away from us. They would have said, well, he's a fake. Now, when he gets up there, it sounds good, but my, when he gets home, it's altogether different. Your life has to be consistent with what you're saying. And our children have all thanked us for the Christian home that they were brought up in. They didn't always agree with what we said or what we did. Our youngest son at one of our youth meetings some years ago told uh, the young people that he was addressing, he said, when I was home, my mother and father had rules that I didn't understand. He said, I didn't even like them. But he said, I look back now and I realize they were for my good. You know, when our children were dating, when our children were home, we told them to be in the house if they were dating. We tell them, look, you be home by 11.30. They were home by 11.30. They didn't tell us when they were going to come home. We told them when they were to be home. When our children were going to school, the rules were, look, you can have unsafe friends at school. But after school, you're not with your unsafe friends. Now, if your unsafe friends want to come over here, that's all right. But you're not going to be running with the world. It wasn't always easy. But our children look back now and they thank us for that stand that we had in the home. Listen, as parents, you have the responsibility of your children. Someone just commented the other day that being a parent is not hard. Even a small child knows how to direct them, you know. <laughs> Our children are not to direct us. They're not to guide us. We are to guide them. But in love. In love. We need to be strong in our discipline. We need to be equally strong in our love. Our children need to know that we love them. They need to realize that what we are doing... We are doing because we love them and because we want them to have a good and a prosperous life before the Lord. It's true in our homes as husbands and wives. I, like I've said to you before, I believe the Bible is a practical book. It needs to affect our lives. It needs to speak to me as a husband. It needs to speak to me as a grandfather. It needs to speak to me as a father. It needs to speak to me as a pastor. It needs to speak to me as a friend. You see, the Word of God needs to touch my life. And my dear friend, if it's not touching me where I live, something is wrong with my life. There's not anything wrong with the Word of God. Well, we're, but I think these areas are important too. You know, I, I sometimes apologize. I'm not off track. I think these are essential to the Christian life. This is what it's all about. There isn't anything that will affect you more as a person than your relationship with your family. And if you parents will learn the time to train your children is when they're young and not wait until they're older when your heart may be hurt because they have gone their own way. It's better now to give that discipline out in love you say, well, Pastor, you believe in spanking? If it's necessary. Discipline is in two areas, by the way. We have instructive discipline and we have corrective discipline. 
Now, if we do a good job in instructive discipline, we're not going to have to worry so much about the corrective. But if we fail in instructing, then the corrective discipline is going to have to come, and that's where it hurts. It hurts. So if we are doing right in our instructive discipline, our corrective discipline is going to be minimized. And what my children to do, even now, our three children are married and have families, it affects our lives today. Parents, or well, parents never outgrow the need for their children, and children never outgrow their need for parents. I don't care how old they are. Many of you, if you have parents who are living today, maybe they're well up in age, you still enjoy going home and seeing mother and dad or having mother and dad come to you if they're still alive. You never outgrow that. We outgrow the needs in different ways. When a man gets married, he doesn't need a mother to mother him in his marriage. He is to forsake mother and father. Not everyone does it. There are many heartaches. All right, let's go back to our thoughts here. It is stated that the Gentiles had come out of heathenism, and it was fitting that their spiritual father, the Apostle Paul, should also be their devotional exemplar. I like that, don't you? The Gentiles came out of heathenism. The Apostle Paul is the apostle of God for the Gentiles and, or for the nations. It is fitting then that Paul should become our devotional exemplar. And did not Paul himself say, follow me even as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I don't tell my congregation to do that, although I want them to. I want them to. I want my congregation to be like me. You say, well, preacher, you're sure sticking your neck out. I know that. I know that. But that's what God wants me to do. That's what God wants you to do. When you're bringing up your children, you want your children to be like you, don't you? You want your children to have the same kind of faith that you have. You want your children to be as spiritual as you are. You want your children to love the Lord as you love the Lord. Recently, I just delivered a message on our ministry as pastors. My ministry is my congregation. And if I don't see some fruits in the lives of my people and my congregation, I feel that I don't have a very good ministry. Because my congregation is my ministry. When you're bringing up children, they are your ministry. And when your children are young, what you are doing is getting your children ready for that finished product when they leave the home. So that if you have a daughter, when she leaves the home and when she gets married, she knows what her responsibility is in marriage. She will be taught how she is to love her children and how she is to love her husband when they come. And love is taught. You do not fall in love. Hear me? You do not fall in love. Because if you can fall in love, you can fall out of love. Love is a learned process. There are many people who fall in love with love. But you can't love someone until you get to know them. Love is a learned process. And I tell you, sometimes it takes us husbands a lot of years to really learn the love process. 
Peter tells us we are to study our wives. We are to know them. Do you know your wife today, my dear husband, friend? Do you understand her temperaments? Do you understand her feelings? Do you understand her emotions? Do you understand her as a woman? You need to study her. You need to realize what makes her happy. You need to realize what your responsibility is to her. We heard about this earlier this morning, didn't we? In the same way with a woman. You know your husband today? Do you understand him? Now, you're not going to think like your husband. You're not a man. You're not going to think like your wife. You're not a woman. But God gives us the material in His Word that we can know and understand these areas. God doesn't ask us to do things that can't be done. I said that, that to you yesterday. God never tells us to do something that God won't enable us to do. And you'll find out that you'll be the one that receives the blessing from Him. All right, so Paul then, the apostle of the Gentiles, becomes our exemplar. Moreover, he wrote twice as many epistles as all the other apostles added together. Now, not in length, but in number. Paul wrote 13 epistles, not 14. I know, some say, wait a minute, preacher, you don't know how to count. You left out Hebrews. Yeah, I did. I left out Hebrews because the Holy Spirit left out Hebrews. <laughs> you know, somebody said, I believe in verbal inspiration. The Holy Spirit didn't say Paul wrote Hebrews, and I think if verbal inspiration counts, I'll count it there. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't agree with me, that's all right. You'll learn. <laughs> he wrote twice as many epistles then, not in length, but in number, as all the other apostles added together. Listen now, nevertheless, there are eight times as many prayers in his epistles as in all of theirs. He wrote twice as many letters, but the Holy Spirit of God has recorded eight times to eight times more of Paul's prayers than all of the other writers together. Have you ever wished or desired that you might be with some man that really knows how to pray? and just be around him and listen to him pray. You know, the Holy Spirit gave us this in the Word of God. I don't believe there was a greater man of prayer than the Apostle Paul. And God has graciously given to us a number of his prayers that we might know how to pray, that we might know what to pray for. And I tell you, brethren, as I grow older and as I meet and deal with more and more people, I can see more and more the importance of the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. Because I'll tell you why. When Paul prayed, he prayed not for the material things, but for the spiritual things. And I will guarantee you, if you are right spiritually before the Lord, regardless of what you have materially, you're going to have a fulfilled life. And you can have everything this world has to offer. And if you're not right with the Lord, you're never going to be a fulfilled person. Never will. It just cannot be because God created you for fellowship. And so our greatest joy, our greatest peace, our greatest satisfaction is going to be in fellowship with our Lord. 
And so we can learn from the writings of Paul from his prayer life what we are to be praying for. Then he goes on to say, chiefly we call to mind the first thing said of Paul after his conversion in Acts 9-11, Behold, he prayeth. Behold, he prayeth. He was established as a man of prayer. And I said yesterday, God has recorded some beautiful prayers in scriptures for us. There are a number of prayers of our Lord that we can learn from. I believe perhaps one of the greatest prayers that he offered was in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross when he said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. I think that's one of the hardest things for any of us to pray. I know people, I've had someone say to me not very long ago, I said, well, have you asked the Lord for his will? No. Said his will may not be my will. That's right. Absolutely, I talked about that yesterday. Our will is not always God's will. We're stubborn, aren't we? We're egocentric. We've been brought up that way. From our childhood, when a child is little, they are self-centered, and rightfully so. This is, that's the only way a little one has to tell mother and dad, look, I need something to eat, or I need a change, or whatever it might be. And they grow up that way. Someone told me, I thought it was so, so cute. A little one went to Sunday school, and they learned one of the little choruses they were singing. And uh, I'm sure many of you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, you know. And they just took to that right away. This little light of mine. You know, my light. <laughs> because it's my truck. It's my doll. And uh, they are brought up that way. Well, we go through life, and we still have that big mind in there, that big eye. And that's what the Lord has to work on. That's what he works on in all of our lives. And until we learn to bring ourselves into conformity to his will and to his word, we're going to be fighting against the Holy Spirit's ministry. The most miserable person in this world is the believer who is out of fellowship with God and trying to live in the world and doesn't fit either places. They don't fit in the world. You know, you go and think, oh, I'm going to have a great time. And my, you get there and that little spirit begins to speak to your heart. You've got no business here. Look at to, listen to what they're saying. Look, and you're just miserable there. And you go to church, you're miserable because you're not right with the Lord, and you're just miserable all the time. You, just, you know, well, like one pastor was telling about a man he was dealing with who was unsaved. Uh, pastor, pastor Richard Jordan, some of you at conference uh, might recall this, said he opened the door one day, and there stood a man that he'd been dealing with, and this man just let him have it. Boy, right smack on the button. And he went flying backwards, and he lay on the floor there. His glasses went one way, looked up this man. I don't remember call his name. We'll just call him George for now. And he looked at him, and he said, George, why don't you get saved and cut out all of this nonsense? <laughs> See, that man was so underneath conviction that he thought, well, Jordan's got to be the problem. Uh, don't you believe there aren't people that go to church and think the preacher's got to be the problem? Why, don't you know that preacher was preaching right at me today? I, I know. But a woman now is a little bit angry with me. I didn't say anything but what the Word of God said. I wasn't preaching at anybody. I just preached in the Word. One man came to me one time and said, You preacher, he said, I think you must read my mail. <laughs> well, I don't have to read your mail. I've got a book right here. Knows all about you, my dear friend. Because the one who wrote the book puts you together. 
He knows all about you. I have to know about you. I, I know about me. If I know about me, I know about you. You're no different than I am. I'm no different than you are. There is a difference perhaps in where the Holy Spirit fits into our lives. There is that difference. And uh, we need to realize that. All right, let's take and turn to Romans chapter 1. Is it that late already, horse? Romans chapter 1. I don't know what we're going to do about this. And uh, notice, if you will, beginning with verse 8. Now, this is just one of the prayers recorded for us. Of Paul, Romans 1, 8. First, I thank my God. And just stop and think about that. Paul made it personal. In Philippians, he said, My God shall supply all of your needs. My God. Paul had a personal God. He believed in his God. He believed in the power of his God. He believed in the concern of his God for himself. And so Paul declares, first, I thank my God. Now, all of our prayers are to be addressed to our Heavenly Father. All of them. We address them to God, not to men. Now, sometimes people pray to others. We have to be guard against that, don't we? That in our prayer meetings, in the times that we pray, that we realize we're praying to God, not to those who are in the room with us. We need to realize that. Our prayer is to be to God. Our prayer is to be to our Father. The second thing we find, that it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said to you yesterday, the only access we have into the presence of God is through the Son and through the Holy Spirit. We have no right to enter into the presence of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is never open to the unbeliever. It is never closed to the child of God. But isn't it marvelous? God has provided the way into his presence through his son. And the only thing standing today between one who is saved, or the, the only thing standing, I should say, in the life of a person who is not saved and God, is their stubbornness. You see, God loved us so much, he sent Christ down to this world to die for us. It's the will of God that all men be saved. Christ gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in, in due time. It's God's will for you to be saved. God's made the provision for your salvation. Now, if you're not saved today, it's not God's fault. It's not His fault. He's done everything He can do. He's done everything He shall do for you. My dear friend, the only thing that stands between you and God today, you and salvation today, is your will, as weak as it might be. Now, understand, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. But when the Spirit of God speaks to our hearts and brings that conviction in and we realize the sinners we are and we say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus Christ died for me. We believe that from the heart that settles it. And that very moment, that door is opened up into heaven. The throne of God is available to you. And so I urge anyone today that may not be saved to take that step of faith. 
All right? It is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then is, it is also specific. Paul prays and thanks God, or through the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, thanking God, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. I thank God for believers who have a testimony to others. And there are those. We talked, the Monday night it was, uh, Sunday night, about Timothy, that people were talking about him. There are people talking about people. And when somebody comes to me and says, is so-and-so in your congregation? And I say, yes, they are. And they say, Pastor, they're a wonderful person. How loving, how gracious they are. I say, thank you, Lord. Somebody comes to me and says, that person in your congregation? Yeah, boy, they're sure not a very good Christian. We don't like that, do we? But Paul thanked God for their faith spoken of throughout the whole world. We uh, find again that his prayer is through Christ. It is a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, it is a prayer concerning their faith throughout the whole world. Now, we're going to stop at this point. Not that we've covered everything. I'm trying to get things down onto the tape here a little bit for those of you who want to go over it. So we'll uh, stop. I've got just a, another section I want to read here. Uh, well... Of course, I'm going to go on just a little bit. I guess they'll just have to uh, get that much. I want to go a little bit more because there's another area I want to touch here. Dropping down to verse 10, making request. You notice that? Making what? What's it say? Request. Making a demand? No, a request. Now, many people believe today that they can make demands of God. God, you promised whatsoever I ask for, faith believing, I'm going to get now. God, I demand. Oh, no, my dear friend. Paul made a request. Not a demand. But there are those today who are making demands upon God instead of requests from God. And so Paul, we read here, uh, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey... So let's not be demanding in our prayer lives. Let's be requesting. Let's make it a matter of God's will and not our will. And then last of all, in verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you might be established. I think Paul's prayer was a good one, don't you? He was praying that he might be able to go to Rome and impart unto them some spiritual gift that they might profit even more spiritually. And I think, brethren, we can pray for those things. I don't think I can pray for a new Cadillac. God tells me to be satisfied with my Chevette. <laughs> it's not always easy. <laughs> I thank the Lord for it, though, when it goes by the gas stations. But uh, when I go out with our young people, and I've got about six or seven young people, 
you know, it gets a little bit more like a sardine can than it does a Chevette, but we manage. Young people have a way of adapting uh, themselves to the situation. But, you see, we, we are not to be making demands upon God. God is not there as a genie to satisfy every whim and every desire that you and I have. There are some who believe that. It's told about the man uh, whose neighbor's dog would come into his yard and do his little thing over there. And so he said, Lord, you promise whatever I ask for, you're going to give me. I demand that you keep that man's dog out of my yard. Demanding. We have no right to make demands upon God. We are the recipients of his blessings. We are the recipients of his grace. We are the recipients of his love. We should be a thankful people. We'll get into that, Lord willing, before the close of the week. Well, we have about seven minutes here, so we'll just stop at this point. Maybe you've got a question or a comment on something I've said. Uh, also, I just want to make mention, I have a little tract here on the table. I think there are enough to go around. If not, uh, I have a few more in the car. It was written, these comments were written by George Mueller back in 1841. I mentioned him yesterday that he's written about so often as a man of prayer. And I think you'll find this to be enlightening concerning the prayer life of George Mueller. He used to believe the most important thing to do was when he got up in the morning was go to God in prayer. He learned that the most important thing in the morning when he got up was to get into the Word so that when he went to the Lord in prayer, he went to the Lord in the right spirit. So you might go through that. I think you're going to find it to be an interesting track. Whether you agree with it wholeheartedly or not, I think your heart will be challenged through it because uh, we're going to find that even our prayer life is to be guided by the Spirit and not by the flesh. All right, maybe you've got a question or a comment. Anyone? Yes. Well, I don't believe that Paul is necessarily dealing with uh, the gifts per se. They already had some of them. If you read in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, uh, you'll find that the gifts were already present, a number of them in the Roman church. I think the gift that Paul is dealing with here is some spiritual knowledge, spiritual understanding that they might have in the Word of God. And I think that is consistent with what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that Paul wanted to impart to them. I think you'll find that consistent to all of Paul's prayers uh, concerning the spiritual things. All right, Brother Al Vandenbosch, you have a comment on that or question? All right, very good. All right, yes. I have dealt with people that way, and I tell them God does not do business that way. He doesn't do business with us on our terms. God does business with us on his terms. God is not in the business of making business deals with us. Like I was dealing with one man. He and his wife were separated, had been separated for some time, and also had a woman. The, other, the opposite way, her marriage was falling apart. And both of them wanted to make a deal with God. I'll serve you if you give my mate back. I said, no, 
you serve the Lord because you want to serve the Lord and you let the Lord work out the details the other way around. See, they were trying to say, Lord, I'm going to serve you, not because I love you, not because I believe it's what you want me to do, but Lord, if I'm going to get something out of this, then I'll serve you. Had they been faithful to the Lord, had they both lived for the Lord, had they done what God wanted them to do, God could have worked out the details for the marriage. Both of them went away and never did come back to the spiritual things of the Lord because they weren't interested in the spiritual things. No, God does not do business that way. God does not say, if you put $5 in the offering plate, I'm going to send $100 back to you. I've heard of people where it worked in their lives. That's not yeah. You know, there's the old saying, you believe uh, half of what you see and uh, very little of what you hear. Uh, I can't argue against experiences. I quit doing that long ago. I quit doing that. I've been dealing with a Christian science woman for four years. And if you talk about people that talk about healing experiences, they are ones that talk about healing experiences. And honestly, I've never found anyone so deceitful as the Christian science. Because they say one thing and they do something else. When we go over there, when we would go over there, she would have her medication. If one of her Christian science friends would come over, she would have it hid lest they see it. That's right. And, and others did the same thing too. And I, I think it's sad. I know what's going on in the world today. I know that we're in a body of humiliation. The whole basis of their doctrine is wrong. They don't believe in the fall of man to begin with. They don't believe God's word. So, you know, this, this is, God is not blessing. Not that way at all. Now, I believe the devil can be a great duplicator, imitator, and he's going to do a lot of things to lead people astray. You can believe that. Yes? You know, a lot of people believe if it's a miracle, it's of God. And that's not true. No. Satan can duplicate that way. And he will. And what greater miracle is there than the miracle of salvation. I had a young girl one, to me, one time say to Mrs. Baker and I, uh, have you got it? She had been off to a camp, and apparently at the camp they would talk about speaking in tongues. And so she asked me, she said, Pastor, have you got it? Well, I, I had an idea what she was saying, but I'm kind of a joker at heart, you know. And I said I wasn't sure if it was the measles or mumps or what it was I supposed to have had. But uh, I said to her, look, I said, I speak Holy Spirit language. My dear friend, do you believe the Bible today to be the Word of God? Do you believe this is God-breathed? I do. I believe it's God's book. I believe it's the Holy Spirit's book. I'm not talking about the King James translation. I'm talking about the original giving. I believe it is God-inspired. I believe it's God-breathed. Now, whenever I open up this book, I never have to make any apologies for it. And when I speak from this book, I speak with authority. So I, don't have to, I don't want the gift of tongues. I don't need the gift of tongues. I have everything that God wants me to know and everything that God wants me to say right here in this book. And all they're looking for is an emotional experience. An emotional high. And that's what they're looking for. It's not spiritual. I had two young people in my study one time. Both of them claimed to speak with the gift of tongues. I asked the young man, he hadn't been in it too long, I said, let me ask you, are you saved? Well, he said, yeah, I guess so, I think so, you know. I said, well, how do you know? Well, he said, what do you mean? I said, how do you know you're saved? 
tell me about the experience of salvation. Well, he hemmed and he hawed. Well, he said, I've got it in a, I've got a track up here. It's written on the track. I'll read you what the track says. I said, I don't care what the track says. I want to know what you believe. I want to know if you're saved. He could not give me an answer. I turned to the young lady. She'd been in this church all of her life. I said, are you a child of God? Yes. I said, would you tell me about it? How did you come to know Christ as your Savior? Give me your testimony. She had no testimony. Both of them claimed to be speaking in tongues. What was it? Is that of the Lord? Oh, my dear friend. Listen, I would rather speak about my wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, any day than to speak in words that nobody can understand. I have someone who loves me so much and so deeply and so dearly and is so concerned and so interested in my life, I want to share him with others that they might have the same one that I have to love them as much as he loves me. And if I can do that, I, find, I feel that God has blessed me abundantly in just allowing me to share that with others. No, I, this, is, this is God breathed. Listen, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Seventh-day Adventists, they all talk about extra-biblical prophecy. And when we get done, we're left to anything in, in the imagination of man's heart. A woman gave me a book one time, asked me to read it. I said, I'll believe everything in it that's scriptural, but I won't believe anything not. She got quite angry. And I read the book, and it was pretty good up to the point until this fellow started putting down his dreams. As far as I was concerned, it became unprofitable from that point on. And I told her that. I said, now, as long as he is in the Word, it was all right. I don't care about his dreams. We had a group not very long ago looking for the rapture. Yeah, looking for the rapture. The Lord's coming. I know. How do you know? Well, that it all worked out in the Bible. They went out and waited for the Lord to come and nothing happened. What do the unsaved do? <laughs> they laugh up their sleeve. You know? What a bunch of nuts, they would say. You know, I'm not telling you when the Lord's coming. By the time I know, you'll know. We'll be there. Yes. You believe that uh, you can make deals with Satan in prayer. I mean, you know, those are what, you know, you hear stories like that. And, you know, are you talking about a believer or are you talking about a non-believer? No, I'm talking about, uh, well, it have to be a non-believer. Yes, well, they don't have to make deals with Satan. They belong to him already. <laughs> they can't do anything but what he dictates. They, they have no way to make deals. They're underneath his power. They're underneath his influence. Uh, they're in the they are the children of darkness. They're in the kingdom of darkness. They are heirs of everything that Satan has. So whatever he gives them is what they deserve as far as his kingdom is concerned. But you know, when we talk about Satan worship, they've got, they have the wrong image of Satan himself. They have the idea, you know, he's some kind of a monster with horns and a beard, you know, and oh my. Uh, that's not what the adversary is. He's an angel of light. He's a deceiver. If he came up to us like people think he would, we'd spot him right off, wouldn't we? But he doesn't. You know how he comes oftentimes? Bible in hand. That's the way he comes. His ministers are angels of light, and they'll get up on that pulpit and they'll say, Isn't it wonderful? We're all the children of God. Isn't that wonderful? Now, there are 
children of God across the ocean that are suffering and we're all in one big family and we need to reach out to others. You know, as much as you give it unto the least of them, you do it unto me. Oh no, my dear friend. That's the devil's message though. It sounds good. I heard a pastor speaking one time on the radio. Man is not to live by bread alone. He said it's a sin to be poor. The Bible says you're not to live by bread alone. You're to be financially prosperous. That's not what the rest of the verse said. But it sounds good. So you can teach about anything you want if you just take parts of the book. And the trouble is, would you believe there are people gullible enough to fall for those things? Do you know how many millions of dollars some of these television programs are getting in? Where do you think they're getting them from? From believers that know very little about the Word of God. That's sad. So uh, we've got a tremendous task ahead of us to teach the Word. Well, isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 4? that we'd be no longer children, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight and cunning craftiness of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The devil has a system of teaching error. He's well organized, better organized than many of us preachers are. He has a system of teaching error. And that's why in Ephesians 6, Paul said we are to stand against the wiles, the strategies of the devil. He's a strategist. He studies you and me. His uh, messengers study us. They know. They know our weaknesses. And that's why we need the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles, the strategies of this enemy of ours. Well, if you have questions, would you write them down? Uh, We'll discuss them, Lord willing, this afternoon. Would you like to touch upon the Lord's Prayer this afternoon for a while? Would that be of special interest to anyone? You mean question and answer? Yes, question and answer period. Any, is that an interest to anyone or all, all of you pretty well set on that? Would you like to have us touch on that? All right, we'll do that at least for a while. But if you have other questions, write them down. We'll get to them also. Uh, by the way, I'm supposed to give you an assignment. Yeah, that's what Brother Wynn Johnson said. <laughs> I don't want to fail my uh, ministry here. I'd like to have you read Second Chronicles, chapter 6, uh, beginning with, I had it down here somewhere, well, I better check my book, Second Chronicles, chapter 6, yeah, it's the, uh, so, the prayer of Solomon, dedication of the temple, let's see, it begins with, think about verse 14, if I'm not mistaken. Verse 12, Second Chronicles 6, verse 12, read the whole chapter. Notice, if you will, as you read it, what Solomon is praying for, and notice the condition that you find in the Old Testament Scriptures. You talk about making deals with God. You read that over, and you see how God dealt with Israel. Not that Israel made a deal with God, but how God dealt with Israel. And I think you'll find it profitable. 
Show just our hearts. Thank you, Father, for each one that's here and for this time this morning. Help us to grow in our knowledge of your word. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.